0: Good morning. Let me just add my welcome to Paul's. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. And it's an honor to to serve here and to to lead in this congregation. We're really glad that you're here, especially if you're newer um, or you've just begun to check us out. I know that process of finding a church home, um, checking out new churches, can be hard. And so, thanks for being with us and taking the time to do that today. We're really grateful for that. And um, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew uh, together, if you're newer, um, studying this this Gospel. Matthew was one of Jesus' earliest followers, and and he was used by God to write a theological biography of Jesus. That's basically what the Gospels are. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're they're the stories of Jesus' life, but with a theological interpretation of, of what Jesus was doing and what it meant, His life, His death, His resurrection, the proclamation that Jesus is the King. And one of the main themes that we've seen over and over again is we in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've walked through it all these months, is that those who think that they know God often don't. They're actually mistaken. And they they end up missing Jesus altogether. This is one of the things we just see over and over again. The the ones who think that they're in are actually out. And in this passage we're looking at this morning, we see that theme continuing. And Jesus here, he gives us a gauge an indicator that we've truly come to know Him. Because if, if a lot of people are missing Jesus, they think they know Him, but they actually don't. Well, how do, how do I know that I've actually come to know Him? How do we know that we've become a part of His family, that we're being transformed by His life, His death, His resurrection, His love? How do we know if that's happening in our lives? And, and it's a gauge we can't afford to ignore. But in the busyness of our lives and, and the fast-paced of all of that, it can be easy to forget, to miss it, Remind me of a time three years ago. Um, Rachel and I, uh, Lucy was just five months old at the time, our daughter, and we were coming back from vacation. Um, we had spent like two weeks out in, in Phoenix, Scottsdale area, and we were getting ready to go. And I was really antsy to get on the road, and I was still getting used to how long it takes to get things done with a five-month-old baby. And I was kind of annoyed about how long it was taking us to get the car. I wanted to get on the road to make good time. And so finally, after what I felt like, well, it took way too long, we finally got the car packed, we finally got everything in, and we were on the road out of the city and, and finally uh, headed out. And we were making good time. Um, I kind of took a deep breath. It's like we finally pulled away from the city and we're kind of getting into the scenic Arizona desert, leaving city and civilization behind. There was only one problem. In the busyness, uh, I forgot to check how much gas we had. Uh, I ignored a, a pretty key gauge on the dashboard. And we started the trip with only about a quarter of tank of gas, which is just enough to get you far enough away from the city that there aren't any gas stations around. Um, and so I'm driving through and I realize, oh no. And, and I was, trying to, was kind of surreptitiously trying to Google gas stations on my phone without letting Rachel know. But the problem is there's no cell coverage. And so like we can not get the maps to work. And finally I have to tell Rachel, I was like, I, we, we were really low on gas. I can't find a gas station. Can you get the phone and help? And There was about maybe 35 minutes in there as the gauge kept dipping lower and lower where we thought maybe we're going to be stranded in the desert with a five-month-old baby and no gas and almost no cell phone coverage. And uh, Rachel wasn't thrilled in that moment. Um, But kind of at the last moment, we kind of rounded another bend and we're slowing down trying to conserve gas, you know, turned around another bend. And I saw this little sign. There was like an RV park and said something about gas. And so we kind of coasted in and there was this like single gas pump there at this little RV Uh, thing, we were able to fill up and everything was fine. But the thing was, I had ignored that key gauge. I'd missed it in my rush, in my hurry. I just missed the gauge. And so what's the gauge that Jesus gives us here, that we've truly come to know Him, that that we're part of His family, that we're being transformed by His life and His love? And, And it's simple, but we often miss it. How do we know that we love Jesus? What Jesus tells us in the passage we're going to read in a moment is we know we love Jesus if we love his family, especially the most vulnerable of them, that we love the least of his brothers and sisters, because how you love Jesus' people is how you love Jesus. You see, the gauge isn't how often you go to church or whether or not you've lived a, a decent life whether or not you prayed a certain prayer when you were a kid, or whether you obeyed most of the rules most of the time. It's, did you love the least and most ignored of Jesus' family? And then the peril of ignoring that gauge is far, far worse than being stranded in the Arizona desert. Jesus tells us in this text that we're going to read that it's literally hell itself. Because it's here in Matthew 25 that Jesus gives some of his most sobering teaching on hell. And if we want to live lives of faithfulness as we wait for Jesus to return, we must love His family, especially the one the world ignores. So let me pray for us, and then I want to read this passage of Scripture this morning. Father in heaven, we're thankful that You have spoken to us in Your Word, that You have um, not left us just to wonder what You're like or how You're at work, but you've, You've spoken to us, You've preserved Your Word for us. And I pray now that you would be at work not merely having us accumulate more information, but that you would be at work truly transforming us. That's what we long for. But we know only you can do that work. And so transform me now and us as we study this passage together. In Jesus' name. Well, our scripture passage and reading for this morning is in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. That's on page 831 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to grab one of those or if you brought a Bible or pulled up on your phone, um, Matthew chapter 25, um, verses 31 through 46. Again, that's page 831 in the Pew Bible. Also, if you um, don't have a Bible of your own, if you're newer to, to church or um, you never had a Bible, we'd love for you to take uh, that Bible home with you as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Scriptures. So, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, this is the the words of Jesus to us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the goats on his right Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I I told you it is a sobering passage And it's probably one that whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, that you struggle with, and and me too. So let's begin to break this down together to understand what Jesus is teaching. And and Jesus basically says three big things here in this passage. Uh, First, He says that judgment is coming. Uh, Second, He says that a compassionate heart is a heart that's been rescued, that if you have been rescued, a rescued heart is a compassionate heart. And then finally, he says, a calloused heart is a doomed heart. So he says, judgment's coming. A compassionate heart is one that's been rescued. A rescued heart is a compassionate heart. And then a calloused heart is a doomed heart. So the first thing that Jesus starts off here saying is that judgment is coming. That's how the passage begins. And this is the part I think we struggle with in particular. And yet, it's one of Jesus' most clear teaching all throughout the New Testament, that, there, that history is going somewhere, that this isn't an endless sort of cycle of repetition, but there is, history is going somewhere, that there will be a moment of evaluation coming. You may remember if you've been with us these past several weeks, that all of this teaching from Jesus, this section of the Gospel of Matthew is called the Olivet Discourse. And it was this whole section of teaching that Jesus is doing. It began when his disciples asked him a question about when are you going to come back, Jesus? When is the world going to end? When is this moment of evaluation coming? And Jesus' basic answer so far is, well, not for a long time, and you always need to be ready. So, to live lives of faithfulness to me in the meantime, and, and know that as you live those lives of faithfulness, suffering even at times, it won't be in vain because this moment of evaluation is coming. Okay, so that's, that's this moment of, of judgment or evaluation that's coming. But then I think another question here is, what's the deal with these sheep and the goats? Why is Jesus picking up on sheep and goats and I mean, you know, maybe it's pretty clear. Maybe Jesus just hates goats, and he's sending all the goats to hell. Um, I actually found this, uh, I don't know if it's a sticker, um, based on this text. Probably not, not great, but it's, it's, not, it's not that. It's not that Jesus just hates Goats and that he's going to send them all uh, to hell someday. Um, no, in fact, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't have anything inherently against jo- goats. He's, he's just picking up on a, on a familiar routine that his listeners would have, would have known about. That oftentimes, if you own sheep, goats, animals, that you would pasture them during the day all together. They'd all be out in the field, the sheep, the goats together eating. But at night, you would separate them out because the goats, they don't have the thick, warm wool of, of sheep. And so you had to actually herd the goats more. Closely together so that they would stay warm at night. You didn't have to do that as much with the sheep. So at night it was a common practice to separate out the sheep and the goats um, for for the evening. And so Jesus is simply picking up on that image and saying that in the same way at the end of time there's also going to be a separation, just like with the sheep and the goats. There's going to be a moment of separation and evaluation. And here's the thing, even though we don't like this idea, and we may even reject it out of hand, if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, this might be one of the reasons that you struggle with with Christian faith, this idea that God would judge people. Even if we reject it out of hand, we still end up living, though, like it's true, or we end up despairing. Let me see if I can explain. I think the the playwright, Arthur Miller, probably captures this better than, than anyone else. And he says, basically, if there's no one to please or disappoint, then why does anything matter at all? Why be kind instead of mean? Why work hard instead of be lazy? Without a judge, without some kind of evaluation, nothing matters. And in his play, After the Fall which is probably at least somewhat about his, his relationship, his failed marriage, um, and then the tragic death of his ex-wife, Marilyn Monroe. He, he captures this, and the character in the play, Quentin, says this, For many years, I looked at life like a case at law it was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or how smart, and then what a good lover, and then a good father, and finally how wise or powerful, or Whatever. And then he continues, but underlying it all, I now see there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. And he says, I think the day that my disaster really began was when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of an existence before an empty bench, Which, of course, is another way of saying despair. Do you follow what Miller is saying in that section of the play that we all live for some judge? And and if we look up one day and realize there is no judge, that there's no meaning. It doesn't really matter if I was good or bad or if I lived, uh, loved people or didn't love them, it's just all going to be over and forgotten. We all live, though, as if life has meaning as if our choices really matter. So we know there's a judge intuitively. Otherwise, all we're, we're doing is just taking a test that's never going to be graded. So the problem then is how could a good and loving God then send people to hell? I think that's maybe even the, the question underneath the question or the objection underneath the objection is, well, okay, maybe God does need to evaluate us for there to be meaning, and that's okay, I can get there, but I just can't get the idea that, that God would send people to hell. And and the short answer to that that we can give this morning is that if God is really going to be good and loving, then He must eradicate evil. He has to deal with evil in the world. All that would threaten and abuse and take advantage of the vulnerable, the weak, the helpless. God wouldn't be good if He didn't deal with the evil that's in the world. Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf um, says a similar thing, maybe a little more sophisticated way, but he says this. He says, and in, in, in Wolf witnessed uh, firsthand the ethnic cleansing that took place in the Balkans. And as a theologian, he writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. He says, in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. And he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. And basically, Wolf's point is this, that It's only people who have never really stared evil in the face, who have never really experienced the evil that's in the world, who are okay with the idea of of a God who just kind of pats everyone on the head and says, oh, everyone can come and and be in heaven. He says, people who have lived in war zones, who have had their children murdered, have brothers and sisters abused and raped and killed, that they they actually have no problem with the idea of a God who judges. In fact, Volf's point is that the only thing that can ta- keep them from taking matters into their own hands is the idea that God will one day be judged. In fact, for many in the non-Western world who have experienced that kind of trauma and violence, their pro- problem was not believing that God would be judged, it's believing that He could forgive anyone. Yes, the doctrine of hell is an ugly one, and you don't have to like it. You shouldn't like it. We should never talk about hell flippantly or with any kind of sense of glee. It ought to bring us to tears and motivate us to share the gospel. You don't have to like it, but judgment is absolutely necessary if you want a God who is good, who Volf says is worthy of worship. And all of us are guilty. We hurt and ignore and act selfishly most of the time. We've declared war on the God who made us, and it's only by His grace that can be rescued. And if we have been rescued, and that's so clear here, if that describes you, if you're one who has been rescued, then a rescued heart is a compassionate heart. A rescued heart is a compassionate heart. Jesus came to rescue us from death and sin and hell and judgment. He came to adopt us into his new family. He's making a new people, a people who are free from sin and death and hell and judgment. That's why he came. That's what he's come to do. And so what's the gauge that those who have experienced that rescue should look at in their lives? What's that they love who Jesus loves? That they love his family that they love his church the least of his brothers and sisters. Listen again to what Jesus says, beginning in verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when, when did we do all these things? And Jesus repeats the whole list again for emphasis. Excuse me. And then you get to verse forty, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did this to one of the least of these, my least of my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Now I want to be absolutely clear in this moment that we don't confuse this because we can't confuse this. Doing those things, those acts of compassion, do not earn our salvation. They are not what make you a Christian. Any more than my gas gauge being on E made my car not have gas in it. Right? My, the position of the gas gauge on my car does not make the car full of gas or empty. It just, it's just telling the reality of the tank. And in the same way, these acts of compassion that Jesus talks about here are a gauge. They're not what make you a Christian, but they are an indication of whether or not you've experienced the transforming love and compassion that Jesus extends in the gospel. They're an outward sign of an inward reality. If you've been rescued, if you have received compassion from Jesus, you will be compassionate to others. You will feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, care for the hurting, serve the oppressed and the marginalized. You will actually love who the world ignores. And specifically in this passage, and the, the Bible and Jesus and other places are, have a robust theology of serving the poor and the marginalized, but in this passage in particular, Jesus is specifically talking about within the family of believers, the church, us, one another. He says, these my brothers, the idea of brothers and sisters, he says, the way we treat other Christians, the way you view the local church, the bride of Christ, it's a light revealing your soul so how do you know you love Jesus? How do you know that you're being changed by Him? It's that you love His family. You love what He loves. And while compassion certainly begins within the church family, it, it spills over and goes forth into, into all the world, to everyone, Everywhere. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the early leaders in the church, had a transforming experience with Jesus and and helped to start many of the first churches in the Roman world. And he writes a letter to a group of churches in an area called Galatia. We have it in our Bibles. It's called Galatians, this letter. And in that, he writes this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, "'Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people.'" How our call as followers of Jesus to good, do good to all people? But then he adds on, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So even as Paul is encouraging these new Christians, do good to everyone, he reminds them, especially to those in the family. Your brothers or sisters in Christ. Why? Because if we can't do this for one another, if we don't do this for one another, we show we don't really know Jesus because you don't have to be a Christian to do good things for other people. There are lots of people who are not Christians, who are doing amazing things for other people in our world today. So the marker that you've come to know Jesus isn't that you just do good things for other people. Lots of people do that. That's a good thing. The marker is that you do good and love and serve the least in Jesus' family you love who Jesus loves within His family. And the point is if, if one of the other people in our church family, if in the larger Christian community is suffering, and we don't care about that, then Jesus says, you've never really been transformed in the first place. You kind of imagine, right, if you had a, uh, a mom who lived on, on your block and she always had the neighborhood kids over and she was just the best kind of block mom, but, but she never took care of her own children. You said, well, she's, not, she's doing a lot of good for people, but she's not, she's not being a good mom. And Jesus says, if you can't love one another first, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much good you're doing in the world. You have to love one another. You have to love your brothers and sisters in the family. That's how you you know that you've come to know me is that you love who I love. You love my brothers and sisters the least of these. And we love the discarded, the kid who's always made fun of, the awkward coworker, the person who doesn't speak your language or look anything like you, the people who apart from Jesus we'd want nothing to do with. Whatever we do for them, Jesus takes it personally. We do it for him. And the opposite is also true, that Jesus takes it personally. Whatever we don't do for them, Jesus takes that personally as well. It's what's so clear in this passage, that a calloused heart is a doomed heart. And Jesus says, if that's where you're at, you can go to hell. That's how stark he is in this text. Listen to where he begins in verse 41. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they also will answer saying, well, Lord, when did we see you like this? And he repeats the whole list again for emphasis. And then verse 45, then he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, listen, if you think that you've been called to Jesus but not called to love who the world ignores, then you're desperately wrong. (coughs) And this frightens me because it's easy for me to live a comfortable and insulated life. And it's so much easier to just ignore problems and difficult, hard situations and people than to enter into those places of pain and hurt and complication. Because I don't mind loving people if it's easy, if it doesn't take that much time, if it doesn't take that much money, if it's not that complex, if it doesn't last that long. Right? I mean, sometimes that's hard. We're often really good at helping people if it's like, oh, they just need a, a, a quick meal, but it's like, man, if this thing's going to last for a year, two years, three years, we get tired, and man, it's hard. But all along, the gauge is flashing, warning us. Will we listen? Do we love the least in Jesus' family? Will we love who Jesus loves? What will we do with the compassion, the grace, the mercy, the infinite love that we have been shown? Because the stakes are too high. So how do we do this? Well, I think there, there are three things here actually kind of working backwards through the text as next steps for us here this morning. So first is this. If a calloused heart is a doomed heart, we need to be aware of the callouses that, that are, that are going to form, are forming on all of our hearts. That we're the places where we're blind and we don't even know it. That we're so conditioned by our culture, our politics, our neighborhood, or the color of our skin that we don't even see other people. Recently, Rachel and I watched the Oscar-nominated film um, Florence Foster Jenkins, which is both, it's hilarious at points, it's also incredibly sad. And it's the true story of this exceptionally wealthy and, as a result, insulated woman who's convinced that she's one of the great opera singers. But she's absolutely terrible. This is a true story. She's awful, but no one told her. And she'd actually host these concerts, and her husband would hire an audience to cheer and applaud, and he'd bribe reviewers to write good reviews. She actually performed at Carnegie Hall. And you can Google Florence Foster Jenkins, and you can listen. They actually they made some recordings, and they put those online. You can hear. I mean, it's terrible. And It's just reminding me how clueless we can be. We surround ourselves with people who agree with us, who see the world the same as us, who read the same newspapers and websites and Facebook feeds as us, who look like us and who never challenge us. And so we assume everyone's life experiences are like ours, that everyone's had the same opportunities and privileges that we do, uh, that that our voice is as good as it sounds in our heads. But how sad is that? And it makes us callous towards anyone who's different. And so we end up offering really simplistic solutions to incredibly complex problems. Or we grow fatigued. We see so much need, so much brokenness, so much hurt and pain in the world that we just think, I can't fix every problem, so I'm just going to do nothing. I think that's probably where I'm at most of the time. I listen to the news, I read the paper, and I think, it's just too much, it's too big. I'm just going to keep living my little life here and not get involved. I also think one of the biggest challenges, and I just point this out, because again, this is Jesus' focus here, is that we have today is toward the local church, because Jesus is talking exclusively about the family of faith. We can end up treating church not like a family of faith, but like a social club, a place to impress one another, or a hobby, or when it's supposed to be family, loving one another, serving one another, sacrificing from one another, welcoming everyone, reaching out to one another. You even just ask yourself, who would you rather never walked through these doors? Because that can't be the church And your church needs you and and you need the church. We need one another to expose those calluses, those blind spots in our lives. People who aren't like us, to stretch us. Are we living these things out with one another? Do you know your calluses? Have you challenged them? Have you repented of them? Second, and it doesn't get much simpler than this, we just need to do what Jesus says to do. We actually need to do what Jesus tells us to do. I just want to imagine, what would that look like? Imagine with me. What if our first thought when we see someone, a a new neighbor, a classmate, someone driving through the city on the news, what if our first thought about that person wasn't about race or language that they speak not wondering who they voted for or their sexual history or how much money they make or how educated they are or how attractive they are or not what nation they're from or whether they're here legally or not. Well, what if our first thought was, could this person be a brother or sister? And if they're not, could they become a brother or sister? Well, but maybe they're, maybe they're a terrorist or a tax drain or a threat to me or my culture, or maybe I just don't like them. Yeah, maybe, but maybe they're family. Maybe they're a brother or sister in Christ, or future brother or sister in Christ. And family changes everything, doesn't it? Because if, you're, if your literal, actual biological brother or sister is hungry or thirsty, would, we don't hesitate to help, to give, to assist. If, if it's your child who's in a broken educational system or a broken justice system, but we don't ask the question of whose life matters. Or if it's your sibling at risk of being detor- deported or if it's your family or potential family that needs a job or shelter from violence who lost everything for Jesus or lived in constant danger. Jesus says he takes those things personally when it's the least of those in his family. And I'm not saying that we just do what anyone wants. Or that we ignore wise and proper boundaries? Of course not. And saying yes isn't always the right thing. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to say no. And sometimes in our naive attempts to help, we can actually cause more harm than good. We know that, right? But imagine if the church thought this way. The first thought, what if this is a brother or sister? What if this could become a brother or sister? This person... Who have we ignored or disregarded? Our world discards people all the time. What if the church does what Jesus says and view people first and foremost through the lens of this is a future brother or sister, this is my brother or sister? Finally, if we're going to do this, if we're going to leave this place with any sense of hope, because this is a heavy message, isn't it? We have to remember the compassionate one because we don't earn anything by living this way, but our compassion reveals whether or not we've met the compassionate love of our souls. For yes, the judge is coming and he expects us to obey. But the unique thing about this judge is He stands ready and willing to be in our place to receive the judgment that we deserve. He's already paid our debt. We are the broken and impoverished ones because of our sin, oppressed by our own self-centeredness. We are the hungry and thirsty, and Jesus satisfies with us with Himself. The naked He clothes with His righteousness. We are the sick that He restores through His death, the imprisoned that He's delivered through His resurrection. Having nothing on our own, He gave us everything. And at the cost of His own Life. He left his throne and all the power and privilege that he had, and he entered our world. He became one of us to come to us and rescue us. He paid our debt. He faced the fires of hell so that we could have life never ending. He is our king, and he's bringing a kingdom. He's building a family, a family that loves like he loves, a family that will face the fires of hell for one another and risk everything to share the good news of his kingdom with anyone in the world. That's our king. That's the one who's rescued us. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, would you do that work of rescue for us? Would you transform us? And make us into the kind of people who love with the kind of abandon and passion and sacrifice that Jesus, that you loved and love us with. In Jesus' name, amen.